Hello, welcome to The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilley. It is Friday the 14th of August. In a moment, we're going to talk about the Beirut crisis. Why did the whole government resign after the explosion? We're heading towards dark scenarios that were already starting before the explosion and the explosion will only make it a darker scenario. We'll take you to Beirut in just a moment. First, let's get into the big news of the day with Jamila Rizvi. Victoria has recorded its best coronavirus case numbers in weeks. We now believe cautiously that we have early signs of the flattening of the curve in Victoria. Oh, it's good to hear that from the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, saying the words that everyone in Melbourne, I imagine, Jamila, has been hanging out to hear. Uh, He spoke immediately after Premier Daniel Andrews announced 278 new infections yesterday down from that massive number of 725 only a week ago. These stage four restrictions, as heartbreaking and as challenging, as painful as they are, are working. There is definitely some space for kind of nervous optimism. And, Mm. Tom, I think all of us locked down here in Melbourne, we really needed to hear some good news yesterday. There has, however, been another eight deaths recorded, which means that the sombre mood does kind of remain. One day is not enough for us to, or even a week, pretend that we uh, that we can forecast what's going to happen in a fortnight or even tomorrow. So despite the optimism in Melbourne, there is some more challenging news in regional Victoria. The Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Alan Cheng, says a worrying rise in community transmission could force the rest of the state into stage four lockdown along with Melbourne. I think we're looking at that very closely. Um, it's a sort of a day-by-day proposition and um, we really encourage um, the community to come forward to get um, tested so that we can sort of uh, we can get on top of these transmission chains and um, hopefully obviate the need for stage four. Yeah, all eyes on regional Victoria now. Um, Jamila, did you read that story in The Age about patient zero? Yeah, I sure did. So... What the age is reporting is that the patient zero for Victoria's second wave, this horrible wave that has us all locked down in Melbourne, wasn't actually a rule-breaking guard at the quarantine hotels, but a duty manager at one of them. So they've got some leaked emails over at the age, and apparently they're showing that the man reported he came down with a fever on May 25. And of course, there was a major effort to contain that infection. Yeah, it's an interesting story. I mean, basically it shows that it might have been the hotel worker giving it to the guards rather than people in quarantine giving it to the guards, which is a fascinating development. And we'll we'll look to see, I guess, in the inquiry that's happening in the moment if that's borne out. And for the first time in more than 22 years, there's more than 1 million Australians out of work. The unemployment rate has edged up from 7.4 to 7.5% in July, but that's without factoring in Melbourne's recent stage four lockdown, which happened after the data was collected. We are not blind to the fact that next month, the figures for Victoria, because of the stage four lockdowns, are not going to be good. Yeah, concerning news there. There was a little bit of good news, though, from Jobs Minister Michaelia Cash. In excess of 114,000 jobs have returned to our economy. So that's some good news there about those jobs that have been created. Uh, The unemployment figure of 7.5% is obviously concerning, um, but the effective unemployment rate, which actually includes the people who aren't looking for work anymore, is higher at 9.9%. 
12%, but those jobs that have been created have brought that down from what it was, which was 11.2. Yeah, it's also good to hear that the participation rate is up. So what we were seeing when the pandemic first hit and we started to get the economic consequences is that there were a whole lot of people who lost jobs and just stopped looking, Tom. They stopped trying yeah. to participate and work at all. And that's coming up again. It's risen by 0.6%, which is it's really good to hear. New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister says a hotel quarantine breach is likely behind the country's fresh coronavirus outbreak. Does that does that sound familiar, Tom? Yeah, so that's what happened in Melbourne. Um, last night, the Deputy Prime Minister, Winston Peters, told the ABC that the infected New Zealanders have the same COVID strain found in Australia and the UK. The moment I found out that this strain is not unique to my country, it had to go to a point of entry, either by sea, either by air or in quarantine facilities. And the quarantine facility is the one I think is the most likely. Yesterday, New Zealand reported 14 more cases with all but one linked to the initial Auckland family cluster. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern expects that the numbers are going to keep rising. As we all learnt from our first experience with COVID, once you identify a cluster, it grows before it slows. We should expect uh, that to be the case here. So later today, Jacinda Ardern will decide whether to extend stage two and three restrictions, which were brought in earlier this week. And you'd have to think she will, because if they went to stage three with just four cases in Auckland earlier this week, uh, now that they've got a total of 17 community transmissions, I can't imagine they'll be stepping back those restrictions. So, Jamila, it's quite interesting to watch this eradication strategy in action because so far it's looked amazing from across the ditch here in Australia. It's like a lot of people are just thinking, I want what they're having. Um, but now they've got these new cases and, you know, a relatively small number, but they're having to take drastic measures to stop the spread. Yeah, for me, it sort of just settles in that news that this virus, until we find a vaccine, is going to be with us for a really long time, that this whole idea of eradication probably isn't going to happen anytime soon. And yesterday in Victoria, police gave an update on how many people had been fined for breaching restrictions and there was a, a quite an interesting excuse someone had for not wearing a mask, Jamila. Yeah, that's right. There was a guy in Port Phillip, south of Melbourne. He's one of the guys who's got a fine and he said he couldn't wear a mask because he, he has a bad pimple. I'm assuming, like, the pimple needed some air, Tom. <laughs> Surely you want to cover it up with the mask. I know. For me, that seems a little bit counterintuitive. I care more about what other people think of my pimple than the chance for my pimple to heal. Well, this was actually something that came up in our conversation with Dr Pimple Popper from the US. Uh, and she said that the mask was creating a new wave of, and wait for this word, here it is. And especially now with a lot of masks, we're having issues with maskne, you know, acne breakouts. So maskne, had you heard that one before? I hadn't. Now I'm worried about it. Just gives me <laughs> another thing to be worried about, Tom. All right. In a moment, we're going to take you to Beirut. Last week's deadly explosion in Beirut was one of the biggest non-nuclear explosions in history, the equivalent of a 3.3 magnitude earthquake. As well as killing more than 170 people, injuring 6,000 and leaving 300,000 homeless, it's also sent a massive political shockwave through an already struggling country. there were protesters calling on the government to resign. Here's Jan Fran talking about that on Monday's episode of The Briefing. They've got a chant 
um, in Arabic, Kulunyani Kulun, which means all means all. Everyone means everyone. They want everyone to go. That is how much dissatisfaction there is with the country's leaders. Now, later that day, those protesters actually got what they were asking for. The government resigned and went into caretaker mode. So right now, we're going to brief you on why this explosion of ammonium nitrate has brought down the Lebanese government and what are the deeper problems causing so much despair in that country? And just to give you an idea of how urgent this situation is, along with countless homes and three hospitals, the port of Beirut was destroyed in this blast, which is where more than 60% of the country's imports arrive. So that means the very basics of getting food and essentials into Lebanon is suddenly really tricky. And this is a country that was already dealing with a refugee crisis, coronavirus, a financial crisis. Well, now it's facing a whole new challenge. Adam Champsadeen is a Lebanese-born and bred journalist working with Al Jadid TV in Beirut. Adam, we'll get to the big political turmoil in just a second. But first, the blast was only a week ago. How are people coping? What's it like on the ground right now? Uh, so if you go down to, to these uh, three areas, uh, first of all, it's so hard to get there via car or any means of transportation. It's uh, uh, people on foot, uh, people trying to still uh, clean the shattered uh, glass and the debris. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a national workshop. Uh, this is how you can describe it, actually. And how are you doing personally, Adam? This is your country, your people. Where were you when you heard about the blast and how have you been doing since? When the explosion happened, I rushed directly to the explosion site because I work with a TV station. So we had to cover the explosion. And I was one of the first reporters who actually reached the explosion site. And it was can be described uh, the magnitude of the explosion and uh, and the many the, the casualties that you can actually see uh, when you when, when you when you reach the explosion site. Um, as a as a journalist, I mean, we are trained to cope with these kind of situations. But as a citizen, I think every Lebanese is still trying to to cope with the event itself. Yeah, so you've got the the death and the devastation from the blast, but then you've got all the political turmoil around it before and after it. We watched those protests on the streets, people calling for the government to step down, and then they did. So what was happening leading up to the blast that led the government to step down as a result? We were dealing with a cover-up government because after the 17th of October's uprising, there was a huge frustration and anger uh, from the people towards what we call the political establishment or the political elite that usually forms the governments by putting their own figures in the government. But after the 17th of October's uprising, there was huge frustration from the public that actually the political elite or the political establishment decided to uh, take a step back and put what we describe it as a cover-up, uh, a government uh, using different or unknown figures in order to maintain the the, the minimum of stability uh, in, in the country. Uh, and then the COVID-19 wave happened and the mismanagement of the, uh, of the situation led to further frustration. And then the people or the Lebanese public was frustrated with this government, even the political elite saw it as a scapegoat in order 
I mean, the political elite decided that this government should not exist anymore. Uh, and it benefited from the situation in a, in a twofold ways. First, that it would get rid of uh, having a cover-up government in order to reinstate themselves into power again by reinstating the real figures from the political establishment and at the same time offering a scapegoat for the frustrated public in order to calm them down. Right. So, so do you speak. think it's a, it's good for Lebanon that this government stood down or do you think it's actually undoing some of the work of the October uprising, which was trying to break down the control of the political establishment in Lebanon? So what we are actually do, dealing with now is another failure for the political elite to actually... Uh, present any kind of solution, whether a political solution or an economic solution. But the challenge remains for the public and for the Lebanese people to actually not to overthrow a government or to uh, force a government to step down, but to actually uh, force the political establishment or the political elite to force them to, to, to change the mentality of, of governing the country itself. So it's the problem is not the government as a cabinet. The problem is within the entire political establishment and how governments are put in place. It sounds like you're dealing with a, a very big long-term problem there where the people of Lebanon feel like the political establishment isn't working in their best interest and needs to be completely deconstructed. But right now you've got some very serious short-term problems. Your, your port's been blasted to smithereens, which makes it really hard to get food and fuel into the country. Um, you're also, of course, dealing with the pandemic. So is it really a good thing in the shorter term interests of the people of Lebanon to have so much dysfunction and, and a government stepping down at this point of crisis? As you know, the, the, the explosion did not damage just people's houses. It actually damaged many hospitals within uh, the Beirut area and which are not able uh, after the explosion to actually receive any or give any medical care for yeah. the citizens of Beirut or Lebanon in, in general. So what we are witnessing now is, a, is, a, is, is an international will uh, or international uh, Effort. Intervention to, yeah. to keep things standing to, to the minimum. I wanted to ask about the financial situation because, of course, before this blast, Lebanon was already in a really precarious position economically. Uh, the currency had plummeted to record lows. What's this going to mean for people who are living in Lebanon economically? How secure are they going to be going forward? Okay, it's first we we would need to start with the with the fact that the the two areas that were heavily damaged are uh, known to be touristic areas. Jemaisi and Malam Khail is where uh, the nightlife destination is in Beirut. So, uh, in a country that relies heavily on tourism and and it's uh, as a as a as a main pillar of the economic sector, it took a major uh, hit. That's that's for one. Second of all, uh, the poor itself, uh, the destruction of the poor. I mean, Lebanon's two uh, main pillars, main economic pillars, used to be the banking system, which we witnessed its end by the recent economic crisis. And the second one is uh, having Lebanon as a transit point uh, uh, for for import and export. So by taking out the the port after the explosion another economic pillar was was completely uh, destroyed so i think the economic crisis that we are we were already witnessing before this tragic event has happened had happened i think we're heading towards uh, 
unpredicted scenarios in terms of uh, uh, economic collapse and also social uh, collapse. We're already talking about thousands and hundreds of thousands uh, of people, uh, of Lebanese people going below poverty line. We're talking about thousands of people already trying to immigrate uh, from the country. So we're heading towards dark scenarios that were already starting before the explosion and the explosion were only, will only make it a darker scenario. So where do you see things going in the next six to 12 months? Because it's a, it's a shocking situation. You've got a political crisis, an economic crisis, a refugee crisis and a pandemic crisis. So what happens next? I wouldn't even want to start to think uh, about what would come in the in this next. I mean, the, the first thing that is provided is a minimum security and stability. That's the only short-term positive fact that we are still living in. I mean, so far, although there has been a lot of riots, a lot of protests, but the minimum security uh, situation and stability is still uh, provided. Because as you know, Lebanon is... Uh, is always uh, affected by international and regional uh, changes. So, uh, so far, it seems that there's an international and a regional will to keep the country uh, stitched together. This fact or this factor might easily change depending on the regional battles or or, uh, confrontation that is happening. Uh, So that's for the short term. For the long term, I think any country that faces an economic uh, uh, collapse uh, would a normal situation take to five to seven years to recover. An already failed state like the Lebanese state added to it the tragic event that happened with the explosion of the port where we're talking about minimum five to ten years to actually begin to imagine what would the country's future be like and the Lebanese future be like. That was Adam Champsadine, a Lebanese journalist working with Al Jadid TV in Beirut. The future sounds pretty bleak for Lebanon right now. Political commentators are also expecting to see high levels of emigration, that is, people leaving the country for good, which is only going to make it harder to rebuild. Yeah, it's such a challenging situation. This explosion, seen an already sceptical and distrusting population lose faith entirely with the government, which has now stepped down, and they're having to deal with this fallout with no real leadership at all. All right, that is it for the briefing this week. Thank you so much for listening. Have an amazing weekend and we'll catch you Monday. A podcast one production.